This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, Redacted Tonight, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, The New Media Advocacy Project, All In With Chris Hayes, Activism from Pretrial.org, and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Hey, what do the U.S. and North Korea have in common? The U.S. and North Korea lead the world in something. It's not uh, water balloon throwing. It is definitely not movies based on comic books. It is actually incarceration rates. The U.S. incarceration rate is 716 per 100,000. In North Korea, there's little information, but we estimate that it is between 600 and 800 per 100,000 people. If it was on the low end at 600, it would put... North Korea at fourth in the world. If it was closer to the high end at 800, that would put it by far as the number one country in terms of incarceration per capita. The incarceration rates are are high in North Korea for different rates than they are in the United States, right? In North Korea, you can be imprisoned or sent to prison camps because a family member did something which angered the uh, regime, for so many other reasons. In the U.S., of course, we have the war on drugs, the prison industrial complex, over-incarceration, and so many other things. Some would argue, and some conservatives do, they say, well, here's the thing. The U.S. is a melting pot society, and when you mix types of people, be it types of religion, race, background, whatever the case may be, that leads to tension, and that inherently will lead to more crime. Sociologists, of course, tend to reject that. North Korea, of course, doesn't have that issue, where they have a very homogenous population. I think, Lewis, that it is a, like I said, it is for drastically different reasons that the U.S. incarceration rate is some of the highest in the world alongside North North Korea, but it really should be making us concerned and really reconsider the entire policy and system around jails and prisons in this country. Absolutely. Uh, But as I will talk about on the bonus show today, there are some parallels uh, between reasons for incarceration with uh, North Korea and the U.S. I will discuss that today on the bonus show. But also, uh, like with the death penalty and religious fundamentalism, uh, we are in some embarrassing company uh, when it comes to other countries in the world. Yeah, we know that our system of corporatized over-criminalization working in in conjunction with this two-tier judicial system for the rich and for the poor, which partners with the war on drugs to disproportionately imprison nonviolent minorities convicted of drug crimes, with national resources drastically overspent on imprisonment and prosecution rather than poverty reduction and reducing the circumstances that lead to crime. That whole mouthful is a huge part of why the U.S. rivals North Korea in terms of our incarceration rate. Number one, we're number one in prison population. 
Yep, that's right. That's over 2.2 million people behind bars, 160,000 of which are serving life sentences. And 10,000 of those are in prison for life for nonviolent offenses. The National Research Council says that our prison system is historically unprecedented and internationally unique. Why? Because America is the land of the free. And how are all of us unmates supposed to appreciate that freedom if it wasn't for all of our American brothers and sisters who are locked up, reminding us by contrast just how sweet it is? Riddle me that, Honest Dave. According to Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges, states have stopped providing prisoners with essential items including shoes, extra blankets and even toilet paper while starting to charge them for electricity and room and board. Roughly one million prisoners work for corporations and government industries. Hey, at least they're employed! Get out of here! Federal prisoners produce the military's helmets, uniforms, pants, shirts, ammunition, belts, ID tags, and tents. Starting to see where the patriotism comes in? It gets even better. Unicor, the government-owned corporation that employs the prisoners, pays as little as 23 cents an hour. Sounds like slave labor, huh? Don't worry. The 13th Amendment says... Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. It doesn't protect prisoners! Thanks, Honest Abe. Here's Unicor's promotional video. The best kept secret in outsourcing. Imagine all the benefits of domestic outsourcing at offshore pricing. Unicor Services Business Group. Your first choice in outsourcing. Our contact centers have a 2% abandon rate. A 2% abandon rate? You mean like they escaped? Regardless of that, you heard the video. All the benefits of domestic outsourcing at offshore pricing. Prisoners are the only ones keeping jobs in this country. Yet there's certain people who want to tear it all down. Enter Mark Maurer the executive director of The Sentencing Project, a nonprofit advocating for criminal justice reform. He recently testified in front of a congressional task force on federal corrections, where he provocatively said, federal sentencing structures should establish an upper limit of no more than 20 years in prison. 20-year maximums in America, regardless of the crime? I'd love to see the executive director of the sentencing project, Mark Maurer, say that to my face. You know, people have committed serious crimes. Uh, many people, they're 18, 19, 20, they run around with the wrong crowd. They commit a very serious crime, a violent crime. When they're 30, 40 years old, in an awful lot of cases, they're very different people than that 19-year-old who got in trouble. And their risk to public safety is not the same. They're very expensive to keep in federal prison. Okay. Would you say that our prison system is rehabilitative? Is rehabilitative is rehabilit rehabilitative 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 would you say it is it's trying to be at great odds against it reporting from washington john f o'donnell redacted tonight flakes of skin falling as they set fire to my arms cigarettes burn darkly my conscience lost from alarm 
chains read him from the ropes that couldn't chafe me. No longer a man as they take away my dignity. Rings out and yet no one is my pain. Pull it in the foot so they can get me to sing. All the secrets that I hide within my brain made a mush. I cannot think straight enough and they will never lose my trust. By the way, you can get more information about Jim's group, solitarywatch.com, and he has news from a nation in lockdown. Catch this, listeners. This is from one of the fact sheets. Quote, far from being a last resort measure reserved for the worst of the worst, solitary confinement has become a control strategy of first resort in many prisons. Today, inmates can be placed in complete isolation for months or years, not only for violent acts, but for possessing contraband, using drugs, ignoring orders, or using profanity. Thousands of prisoners are held in indefinite solitary confinement because they have been named as gang members by other inmates who are rewarded for the information. Others have ended up in solitary because they have untreated mental illnesses, are children in need of protection, are gay or transgender, are Muslim, have unsavory political beliefs, or report rape or abuse by prison officials. In Virginia, a dozen Rastafarian men have been in solitary for 10 years because they refused to cut their hair on religious grounds. We talk about Abu Ghraib in Iraq when I heard the first news of that prison torture by U.S. military, I said to a reporter, why are you so surprised? you got Abu Ghraib's all over the United States. There is no Western country that so savagely treats nonviolent prisoners as the U.S., wouldn't you say, Jim? Well, yeah. I mean, look, we have, like, conservative estimate of 80,000 people in solitary all over the U.S., you know, in every near big cities, little towns, and so on. The British have 40 people. 40? 40, 40 people in solitary. And they have a fifth of the population. Right. So let's say 5 times 40 is 200 to make it proportional. And we have how many in solitary confinement? 80,000. Weren't there two African Americans who were in, in the infamous Angola prison? And how long did they stay there? One of them is still there? Yeah, they stayed there 40 years. One of them got out, one of them died, and, and there's another one still in solitary. How do yeah. people avoid going crazy? I don't mean just people who are mentally ill before they go there. But, you know, what do you do about people who have serious claustrophobic problems? Or they don't see sunlight, they don't see air, they can't move. What's the psychological literature on this? Well, the psychological literature and the uh, psychiatrists have looked at it, and there are only a few, you know, because this, nobody wants to get involved in crime stuff or in prison stuff because they figure the judges have done the, the work and they don't want to get into it. Anyhow, it's basically, you know, that this kind of punishment induces people to go crazy, and there's some evidence that it actually affects the brain. So these guys are sick. I'll give you another a story. One man wrote me that he was sitting outside the clinic, prison clinic, and he was about to slit his wrists, and he just couldn't take it anymore. He just wanted somebody to know that he was going to kill himself. So I couldn't take it, you know. So I, I wrote him a letter, and I basically said to him, look, try to hold on a little bit, and we'll be in touch. You'll have somebody to write to. So 
he's become <laughs> become a big correspondent. He didn't kill himself. He wrote a letter to me. He didn't kill himself. But he said, I can't get out of solitary confinement because I'm so angry and so mad that if they put me in general population, I'm going to have a fight and I might very well kill somebody. So he didn't want to leave this six by eight cell because he was afraid of what he would do. You're getting testimonies from these prisoners, aren't you? I mean, you get some actually video testimonies, some writings that you've been giving white exposure to, to put a human face on the facts and the, and the figures. Could you explain that? Yes. The only way you can, press isn't allowed, you know, to talk to the people in solitary. And the only way you can, anybody can get any information except for periodic visits by their family members is by letters. The courts have stopped any telephone calls. They can't make telephone calls. They can't look. Usually they, they have a hard time looking at the television. I mean, that's granted as a kind of like pleasure to some people. And, you know, in some of the solitary, I heard a, a guy wrote me in Florida. They were sent to the hole because they talked to each other. They weren't allowed to talk. And a lot of other people, the older people that I've been around, they try to take care of each other. You know, there's no hospices to speak of in the prisons. And they so they sort of band together and they try to take care of one another when they were beginning to die, you know. And so the prison breaks up those relationships. They take the guy who's going to die and they put him in what's called a bubble. It's like a glass cage. And they deny his friend a chance to come in and talk to him to prepare his food, to wash him, take him out every once in a while in the yard in a wheelchair. They deny that. They break up the relationships for security purposes. These are guys who are paraplegics, fought in the Vietnam War, things like that. Who decides whether they go into solitary? Is there any appeal to the courts? Is there any due process whatsoever to the unbridled discretion of the prison warden or his guards? No, he said I could two systems. There's the judicial system of the judges and the prosecutors and so on on the outside. And then there is, in many respects, the real system, which is inside the prison, which is run by the warden. It's at the discretion of the warden. He can do what he wants to. It's at his whim. Is, 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 that, have, is that also for private prisons as well? Private prisons, I think, all claim they don't have long-term solitary. But in fact, private prisons hold people in solitary for various reasons. I'm not sure how long they keep them in solitary, but they're definite solitary. I mean, Washington, D.C. has subcontracted or did subcontracted out part of its prison complex to a private company. And the private companies are trying more and more to get in, you know, to this business. They do a lot of the health care, and the health care is pretty lousy. So there's always the potential encroachment in one way or another, of the private prisons, which can then protect themselves much more easily because they don't report anything. There's virtually no oversight over the prison systems. Don't they get more longer sentences and more profit if the corporate prisons throw people into solitary? By the way, one of these companies on New York Stock Exchange, isn't it the Correctional Corporation of America, Corrections Corporation of America? Yeah, it's one of the biggest, well, certainly the biggest company in the prison business, but it's also highly regarded as an inve investment by retirement funds and so on, you know? And the things that have happened inside that group of prisons and other groups of private prisons are, you know, incredible rape charges. And even with the new rape laws, which are very, very lenient, timid, the private prisons don't have to report rape. 
in the same manner that the public prisons are supposed to report rape. There's a good number of suicides, and those suicides have been increasing, not just private prisons, I'm talking about public prisons. And nobody will admit to the suicides. There are no statistics on suicides. They're just deaths. Prisoners in Massachusetts always said, you know, the thing about the Massachusetts prisons is no one has ever died inside a Massachusetts prison. Everyone's very proud of it. And then they start to laugh. And they said, that's because when you die, they take the body and they give it to the civil coroner, and he declares them dead outside the prisoner. So, you know. This is <laughs> supposedly a macabre joke. Yeah. You, you cite one study that maybe listeners want to know about. In 2005, 44 prisoners in the California prison system committed suicide. 70% of them were in solitary confinement. Yes, the large numbers of people who commit suicide are in solitary. Of course, there's a large numbers that go crazy are in solitary. And has and, anybody brought a suit for cruel and unusual punishment? Oh, I think there've the been Constitution? Yeah, I think there've been many suits and they never go anywhere. You know, what happens with these suits is that under regulations adopted by the Clinton administration, you have all this internal rigmarole you got to go through before you actually get to the courts. So you can be stifled in the, you know, you'll have hearings, you'll have interrogations, investigations. By the time it's over with, it's years. I sent a book to a guy in New York State who's been in solitary for 27 years, and he's a gifted writer. I sent him a book, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I think it was, and he never got it. So I checked it, I tracked it through Amazon, and it showed that the prison had received the book. So I told him, and then he put in a complaint. About six months later, they had investigated this complaint, and they had found that they had indeed received the book from Amazon, and it must have been lost. I mean, like... (laughs) Ralph, I'm just curious, what is the definition of cruel and unusual punishment? If solitary isn't cruel and unusual punishment, what is? It's whatever the judges say it is, David. Uh, By the way, we are talking with James Ridgway, the founder of Solitary Watch, which monitors and exposes abuses that have thrown people in our prisons into tiny cells, and uh, the designation is that they're thrown into solitary confinement, which more and more psychological studies are calling cruel and unusual punishment. And they do this on studies that show what happens to the brain, to the mind of these trapped and incarcerated people, very often having nothing to do with violence, having nothing to do with harming other inmates, as uh, Jim has pointed out. And you can get more information on solitarywatch.com. In all your experience, Jim, about this whole problem, has there been one corporate criminal ever thrown into solitary confinement, even if the conviction was for loss of life due to environmental toxics, occupational dangers like coal mines, knowingly selling deadly pharmaceuticals, etc.? Has there been, in your experience, one corporate crook who's been thrown in solitary confinement? No, I've not run into any corporate people who've been in solitary. There, every once in a while, you know, there'll be a politician, Pat Nolan, who was the head of the California State Legislature for a while, was arrested and convicted of some kind of campaign violations, and he was put in prison for several years. And I think he was in the very beginning, maybe put in solitary, but 
his, most of his time was in general population. He became so angry at uh, what went on that he's now leading, he's the leading evangelical. He's taken over Chuck Colson's group, and he's the leading evangelical. But he fights against solitary. And what's his name? Pat Nolan. Mm-hmm. Has there been any congressional hearing on this in recent years in Washington? There's been one or two hearings in the Senate, and then there's been so-called oversight hearings, which just listen to criminologists and jail officials mm-hmm. in the House. And but, uh, Senator John McLean, who was a prisoner and put in solitary, I guess, for some time in Vietnam when he was captured after his plane went down, has he come out supporting reform in this area? Well, I'm not sure about how far McCain has come out. He said a great deal, you know, against torture, and I don't think he's gone into domestic solitary confinement. You know, all the major politicians are against torture, you know. And all the wardens of the big jails, big prisons, they don't have solitary. I mean, I I saw a survey done by Mother Jones magazine in which they simply called up the different prisons in the United States and asked them if they had solitary, and lo and behold, most of them didn't, said they didn't have solitary. And in fact, one of them that didn't have solitary was Louisiana, where the guys have been in solitary for 40 years. Well, how do and they get away with these false statements? They just get away because nobody challenges it. I mean, Mother Jones ran it. Don't they have different definitions of what constitutes solitary? I mean, if you see a guard, then they don't consider that solitary, right? Well, yeah, they, they have all sorts of different definitions, but they call it segregation. There's administrative segregation. There's, you know, disciplinary segregation. There's kind of segregation that lumps together maybe two people in a cell, and they're even doing some three people in a cell now because they're trying to save money. And, you know, they're about to open. We have one supermax out in Florence, Colorado, and they're about to open another one in Illinois. And Senator Durbin was very outspoken against solitary. But this prison that uh, is going to be opened is going to be a second solitary prison in part in the United States. In Illinois. Yeah, in Illinois. And, you know, whenever you you get into the prisons are a great political gift because they create jobs for union members and they create jobs for local people and they, they get money from the taxpayers. And what's the role of the unions here, the prison guard unions? Well, some prison guard unions are independent, but there are two or three that are slept in really big prison unions. I mean, there's places that you wouldn't think. I mean, SEIU, AFSCME, the Teamsters. Those unions in the past, at least AFSCME and SEIU, have always been thought of as being very liberal and especially supportive of black people who, you know, who are more black people in solitary than anybody else. But... They also have these locals, and they had a local, for example, in, um, in Illinois, and the prison guards local fought to keep the prison solitary complex open and fought very hard. And the national unions shy clear of making any clear statements. You know, when uh, Walter Ruther, Victor Ruther, even and Jerry Wurf were alive, they would use their unions for educational purposes. The only educational purpose that these big unions have in this particular sector, is to put out really, really species stuff on the people in solitary and to say that it's necessary to protect the you know surrounding countryside that they have to have solitary. And there was one case in Illinois, I think, where they were trying to doctor an inmate and they didn't use any anesthesia when they were cutting him. And someone said, you know, that's not, not right. And they said, oh, he likes it. 
He likes it. He told us he really liked it. Now, you know, how can the heads of big liberal unions sit there and have this stuff going past them and not say something? Look at the figure you give on SolitaryWatch.com. This prison in uh, Illinois is called the TAMS Correctional Center. In their 2009 annual report of the Illinois Department of Corrections, this prison had 417 prisoners, 243 of whom were in solitary confinement. And it cost the taxpayer $92,000 a year to hold a prisoner in this TAMS prison in Illinois in solitary confinement, which you say is two to three times higher than the cost of keeping the same prisoner at the state's other maximum security prisons. So it's twice to three times amount to keep somebody in solitary confinement. And if uh, listeners are putting their taxpayers' cap on, they might be concerned on that ground as well. And that's what has elicited a conservative union with liberals like Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist have helped start a group called Right on Crime, and even the Koch brothers are involved. And just a few days ago, it was announced that there's a left-right alliance to do something about prison reform. Most New Yorkers, bail creates an insurmountable obstacle to even accessing the criminal justice system. People often talk about bail creating an unlevel playing field between those who have and those who don't in criminal justice. No. Bail prevents a person from even stepping foot on the field to play. The purpose of bail in New York is to ensure that defendants return to court. The idea is you pay money to get out of jail, and if you don't come back to court, you forfeit that money. It's an incentive, not a punishment. The problem is that in over 80% of the cases in which a $1,000 bail or less is set, defendants are unable to post that bail. So because of their poverty alone, they're unable to take advantage of the entire purpose of the law, which is to get people out of jail pretrial. The effects of this are that people who might otherwise have a strong case, people who are stopped and searched unconstitutionally, or people who are simply innocent, cannot fight their case. Because they're unable to make bail, they end up pleading guilty just to go home. And in the meantime, the collateral effects on their lives, on their families, and on their communities are enormously harmful. So we have basic rights that can't be accessed simply because someone can't afford $500 bail, $1,000 bail, amounts of bail that people with even meager means would be able to make. I got a call from my brother, actually, and tells me, Mike just got arrested. I haven't spoken to him since the night he was arrested, which was Saturday. I don't know if he's okay, if he's not. They take him to Rikers Island like, like if it was some big criminal offense. And I realized that he had bail. I don't have the money. He doesn't have the money. So it was hard because 
I had to borrow, I had to try to borrow money from this person and this person and this person to try to get him out. A bail of $500 might as well be $5 million to the client base we're talking about. Your choice is to try to make bail, and if you can't, you'll remain in custody. And the alternative is you can plead guilty today, and you can go home. He told the judge, I can't afford a $1,000 bail. So he really didn't have a choice but to plead guilty. I wouldn't wish Rikers on my worst enemy because it's, it's rough. Before I got arrested, my life was basically work, home, take care of the kids. You know, I was a provider. And now, since I've been arrested, it's all gone downhill. Criminal record, no job due to, you know, what happened. And it's hard now because now I have to start from scratch. I have to start over. I'm a family man, and my family comes first, so that's why I pleaded guilty. A lot of the cases that we're looking at with, with these misdemeanor cases are what we'd really consider nickel and dime crimes. You're talking about jumping subway turnstiles. You're talking about shoplifting, petty larceny. They're not serious crimes. My name is Tammy. It's I have Tammy, that's grandma. Okay, it's grandma. I have seven kids, two grands. I'm an ex-addict that's struggling every day, you know, to try to get myself together. To know that you're locked behind bars and you can't get out, that's the hurtingest thing in the world. For misdemeanor cases in New York, 99.6% of convictions come from guilty pleas. One of the major tools that prosecutors have for extracting guilty pleas from defendants is the threat of bail. You have some lawyers that tell you, look, I don't care if you did or you didn't, this is the only way you're going to go home. And knowing that you didn't do it, but you'll say anything at that moment just to go home, you'll stand there and you'll say, yes, I did it, with tears rolling down your face. And when the judge said, did anyone tell you to plead guilty? You go, no, I'm, I'm pleading guilty because I am guilty, because you want, you just want to go home. There's nothing you wouldn't do. One consideration with respect to setting bail on misdemeanor cases are the collateral consequences of that decision. Housing, losing a job, and a question always arises, what goes through the judge's mind when they set bail on misdemeanor cases in light of the fact that there may be collateral consequences? My sense of it is it really doesn't come into the equation. My son's name is Paul Jr. He's 14. He's in the eighth grade. He graduated this year. He's doing excellent in school. For me to be a single father, I think I'm doing very well with my son. I couldn't post a bell. I didn't have it. I'm living in a shelter. I lost all my stuff when I got locked up. And me and my son, we, we, we struggling. 
Our clients live on the margins of society, and often the small gains that they've made towards stability are entirely erased by their incarceration. Our clients work at jobs where if you're absent, you're fired. Our clients live in shelters or in transitional housing, places where if you're not there for the night, your place is gone. Our immigrant clients can potentially face deportation. So there are a lot of different ways in which incarceration, even for a short period of time, can really destroy someone's life. I had a job, now I don't have a job. He just recently had a birthday and I couldn't buy him nothing. Nothing. Me being a dad, me can't provide nothing for him. The only thing I was able to do for him was cook a cake. We made the best out of a bad situation. I wasn't able to do nothing for him, but we was together. That's the best present he can have, me being with him. There's no reason why two people charged with the exact same offense, one with means, one without means, should have completely different outcomes in their cases. What the bail fund is going to do is post bail as soon as possible after an arrest, literally at the same moment when a person with means would, so that no one pleads guilty just because they're poor. The bail fund will give access to folks who otherwise would not be able to access the criminal justice system by giving them the opportunity to fight their case from the outside, give them the opportunity to keep their jobs, be with their families, stay in their shelters, and be productive members of society while their criminal cases are pending. It's a real pivot point. It's a moment where so many things can go wrong that will last for years and have consequences that dog people for the rest of their lives. It's also a point where if you can make an intervention and fix it, you can do enormous good. There's something wrong with somebody being put into a cage because they're broke. There's something wrong with that. The bail fund represents an opportunity for true change. New York City has a history of being cutting edge around attempting new things with regard to criminal justice. And the bail fund, as I look at what's going on with bail and misdemeanor cases nationally, there needs to be a change. We can't simply afford to keep doing what we're doing, both because of the financial costs, but also because of the human costs. In short, the bail fund is a way to ensure that in Brooklyn, your right to a fair trial is not dependent on your ability to pay bail. If you ask Khalif Brown or you ask his mom or you ask anybody that lives around him in the Bronx whether or not the Bill of Rights is being defended, he lives in that other America that Martin Luther King talked about. Republican Senator Rand Paul mentioned his name in a speech to conservatives back in February. Rosie O'Donnell had him on The View for a two-part interview last year, and Jay-Z met him, took a picture with him. But before his case became notorious, Khalif Browder was just a kid from the Bronx who was arrested in the May of, May of 2010 for allegedly stealing a backpack. He was 16 years old. Browder proclaimed his innocence the officer who cussed him, and in a profile in the New Yorker last year, he said he remembers an officer telling him, we're just going to take you to the precinct. Most likely you can go home. It would be three years on Rikers Island before he went home again. About two of those years were spent in solitary confinement. And he spent all of those years 
waiting without ever being convicted of a crime, waiting for a trial that never came despite 31 court dates, a trial that ended up never even happening at all because the prosecutors eventually dismissed the case. And during his time in jail, Khalif Browder said he suffered repeated abuse at the hands of inmates and guards. In this video obtained by the New Yorker, Browder was handcuffed and escorted from solitary confinement to the shower. At one point, he turned to the guard and appeared to say something. The guard then threw Browder to the ground, smashed his face into the floor. Browder was finally released from jail in May of 2013, having been charged of nothing. He was no longer a teenager. He was now 20 years old. He tried to get his life back on track, but found it difficult. He told the New Yorker, quote, I'm mentally scarred right now, that's how I feel, because there are certain things that changed about me and they might not go back. On Saturday, Khalif Browder hanged himself outside of a bedroom at his parents' home. He was 22 years old. Joining me now, Jennifer Gonerman, who reported Khalif Browder's story for the New Yorker, Paul Prestia, Browder's attorney, who filed a suit on his behalf two years ago against New York City, the NYPD, the New York City Department of Corrections, and the Bronx County District Attorney. Uh, thank you both for joining me. Thank you, um, Chris. I understand that you, well, you were both close to him, and I'm very sorry uh, for your loss. Will you sure. tell me your uh, reaction to the news, his family, how they are doing? Uh, Chris, this is the saddest story you've ever heard. And, you know, you just, you just articulated most of it in a minute, but if you knew the details of what Khalif, were, um, Khalif endured in solitary, uh, it's devastating. It's devastating to know that this young man had to go through this at that age and was subjected to, you called it abuse, Chris, and I think you misspoke. It was torture. He was tortured, literally by those guards and figuratively, figuratively by that system that kept him in jail for three years. And the extent of that, the damage, eight suicide attempts, attempts over the last four years. He had tried numerous, numerous right. times in. He had tried numerous times out. He'd been committed to psychiatric care. That's right. Five times in solitary, including three in a 31-day period in 2012, and three more times thereafter. And I just want to be And kidding. this is the end result. This was, not a, this was not a kid at 14, 15, before he went into the system, who was suicidal, who was showed signs of depression. I mean, Never this was someone... No mental illness whatsoever, Chris. And that's what's so shocking about this story and so saddening about this death. Jennifer, um, how does this happen in America? We have a constitution, you have a right to speedy trial. Uh, three years without charges is not speedy, by definition. How, how, does, how extreme or routine is something like this? You know, in some ways, Khalif's case is a little bit of an outlier. He spent three years on Rikers Island, trapped there without having been convicted of a crime. But he's not the only one who spent so much time in jail without being convicted. Khalif, from the first moment he was arrested, insisted that he was not guilty. He had done nothing wrong. And he thought he was just going to be held in custody for a couple hours. It turned into three years. He had many opportunities to plead guilty. There was a moment when a judge said to him, after about two and a half years, plead guilty today. And you can go home. And he said, no, they're I trying didn't to, do it. They're trying, you, can, you can see they're trying to basically, it's like, kid, you don't understand. This is the way the system works. you got to plead. That's the only way out of this thing. Right. We can't have trials for all right. these people. We're the Bronx County Courts. Right. What do you think we're going to do? We don't have the time. Right. right. So Khalif, you know, Khalif thought, I have a right to a trial. So and I didn't do waiting, it. Right. And he was waiting for his trial, and it never, ever happened. And you know, the most... What, the, I mean, that is what, what ends up in the massive disaster that is his case. I mean, his insistence on his own innocence and his desire to have his constitutionally guaranteed trial in front of a jury 
is what keeps him in prison. And it just Absolutely. meant that he endured more and more psychological damage. And you know what was the most disturbing thing about the video you showed is actually not on the screen. It's the fact that that was day number 862 on Rikers Island without a conviction. And he's in solitary confinement there. He spent about two years and in since solitary. you showed that video, Chris, that officer right there, he committed a crime. He assaulted Khalif Browder. And I'm wondering when he's going to be arrested because I don't believe it's happened yet. Has there been... You filed a suit. Yes. I got to say, I, my feeling when I've read this story now three or four times, I read it when it came out, I read it. It's been well documented. Peep, someone needs to pay. Like, people need to pay for what happened to this young man. They need to pay in the criminal justice system. They need to pay in the civil system. They need to pay democratically and be not elect. I mean, is there anyone who has been held to account? Anyone for this? Not yet. Not yet. No one's been I'm, fired? As far as I know, no. But in, in, in my interpretation of account, I'm thinking accountability. And the city needs to take accountability, accountability for what happened here. They need to admit wrongdoing. They could make these small reforms and change the laws, the speedy trial laws, abolish solitary confinement. We know that Khalif is the face of those laws. But at some point, Khalif needed to be made whole to the extent that he could for what he endured. Because remember, he was innocent. He was a teenager. And that never happened. Why and now we, we just have to go on without him. Why are we, why are we putting 17-year-olds and 16-year-olds in solitary? Well, you know, that's part of an ongoing and uh, very contentious debate in New York State is that we, def we define, and we're one of only two states in the country to define 16- and 17-year-olds as adults and put them through the adult criminal justice system. I mean, just about every single thing that's wrong with the criminal justice system is in Khalif's story. You know, everything from the court delays, solitary confinement, the conditions in the jail. A, a massive everything. failing at every level. One of the most compelling cases in American criminal, the history of American criminal justice. And um, yeah, I think it's I'm running out of words, I think to be quite honest with you. It is sort of a tragedy beyond, beyond words, like a straight-up American tragedy. And, you know, basically shows how far as a country our criminal justice system has strayed from any actual notion of justice. I mean, it makes an absolute mockery of the Constitution. I mean, in, in a quite literal sense, some of the things that he endured were things that a revolution was fought over. Like, uh, not, not an exaggeration. I mean, the, the, the notion of being detained without trial is, is the type of things that people fight revolutions over, and yet you have this law in New York that guarantees you a speedy trial that sets a six-month clock. And that clock, as we learn in the case of Khalif, mm -hmm. and as I know from friends of mine who practice in the system, is mm -hmm. essentially meaningless, that the six months can take three years. You know, one of the things I find the most heartbreaking about this whole thing is that despite everything Khalif endured, you might think he would be an angry person or a bitter person, and he wasn't at all. He was a smart, perceptive, and you wouldn't, you know, and, and funny. I mean, he was just a really just terrific young man to, to spend time with he him. He had a Paul great, great sense yeah, of humor. Yeah, Paul spent a lot of time with him, and I did too, and it's just, you know, he just was a terrific kid, and everybody who met him loved him. You know, I spoke to an official at his at Bronx Community College yesterday where he went to school, and they were bringing in bereavement counselors because they knew how upset everybody was going to be at the college. Yeah. And, and the last time I happened. saw him was May 22nd. I mean, I had a conversation with him a couple of days before he passed. But I remember that day, we had his depositions, and we walked back to my office, and we made it through a difficult day, Chris. And a colleague of mine had a birthday party, so he came with me, my friends in the office knew him, we had some birthday cake, and they adored him. They were happy to have him there. I walked him out, I gave him a hug, he walked down the subway, and about halfway down, I stopped him. And I said, hey, Khalif, are you good? 
And he turned to me and smiled, and he said, Yeah, I'm good, Prestia. And he smiled. And that was the last time I, I saw him. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, ending cash bailouts in New York. Stealing a backpack shouldn't be a death sentence. Khalif Browder's death is an indictment on nearly every aspect of our jails and prison system. We should, all of us, be taking this tragedy seriously. As Glenn Martin, president of Just Leadership USA, explained to Aaron Morrison of International Business Times, quote, Ultimately, we are all collectively responsible for the death of Khalif, since our insidious criminal justice system exists in our name, unquote. The length of time Browder spent at Rikers simply because he couldn't post bail has surprised people. But if we're supposedly all innocent until proven guilty, maybe the question shouldn't be, why was a 16-year-old expected to... Why was a 16-year-old expected to have $3,000 on hand for bail? Instead, we should be asking, why do people pay for the privilege of waiting for their day in court at all? As the editorial staff from AM New York explained in an op-ed demanding bail reform, the New York City Independent Budget Office report found in 2011 that pretrial detainees make up 75% of the average daily jail population, and nearly half were there because they couldn't post bail. Nationally, the numbers are 6 out of 10 prisoners who are incarcerated in lieu of bail. Cash bail is nothing more than an excuse for politicians to look tough on crime while punishing the poor and giving a boon to private prison companies. Visit the Pretrial Justice Institute's website, pretrial.org, and click the banner for their petition with moveon.org titled, Governor Cuomo End Cash Bail in New York. Sign and share to encourage similar actions in other states and cities. Pretrial.org also has a great take action tab with local and national coalitions, an event calendar, and a page to submit your story. Martin F. Horn, former commissioner of New York City's Department of Corrections, closes his plea to prevent even one more Khalif Browder at the Marshall Project this way, quote, It requires political courage for the city to address these issues and bring sanity to the jails. It will take money and leadership. There is no alternative because our jails are a reflection of our collective conscience. And if they remain as they are, the fault is ours, unquote. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If ending the practice of paying for freedom pending a fair hearing matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Pre-Trial Justice Institute's campaign via social media so that others in your network can get involved. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations 
The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? At its heart, America's bail system sounds pretty simple. If you're charged with a crime, the court might ask for an amount of money as bond and then return it to you once you show up for trial. And if you have that money, it's no big deal. But if you don't, you can be in big trouble. Just look at one example, a man called Miguel. Uh, he was arrested for driving with a suspended license. The court set bail at $1,000 and he had a choice. Pay it or await a trial in Rikers Island. And I'll let Miguel and his wife take the story from there. I wouldn't wish Rikers on my worst enemy because it's, it's rough. It was hard because I had to borrow, I had to try to borrow money from this person and this person and this person to try to get him out. He told the judge, I can't afford a thousand dollar bail. So he really didn't have a choice but to plead guilty. Now, whether he was guilty or not, the fact is a non-violent offender spent time in Rikers because he didn't have a thousand dollars. And this is a systemic Problem. Increasingly, bail has become a way to lock up the poor regardless of guilt. Because Miguel, Miguel was a family man who posed no danger to society whatsoever and he was stuck in Rikers. Whereas, millionaire Robert Durst, who'd been accused of murder in Texas, had a completely different experience of the bail system. I had been told by the detective that uh, you've been charged with murder, bail has been set at $250,000. But was your intention when you put up the $250,000 to run away? Oh, goodbye $250,000, goodbye jail, I'm, I'm out. I'm out? <laughs> that, of course, is an excerpt from Robert Durst's children's books, Goodbye Jail. <laughs> goodbye money, goodbye bail, I killed them all, but goodbye jail. Of course, of course. The problem is... The frequency and cost of bail have risen dramatically, and it is disproportionately hurting the poor. In fact, in 2013, an analysis of New Jersey's jail population found that nearly 40% were being held solely because they couldn't meet the terms of their bail, which is crazy. Jail is supposed to be for dangerous criminals. If 40% of a group don't meet the basic criteria to be there, that should change your perception of what that group is. If 40% of the Girl Scouts were grown men, you'd feel weird about buying cookies from them. So, so what happens if you can't make bail? Well, much like a game of fuck, marry, kill with Crosby, Stills and Nash, there are a few terrible scenarios. Option one. You sit in jail. And again, if you're poor, as this defense attorney explains, that has immediate consequences. Our clients work at jobs where if you're absent, you're fired. Our clients live in shelters or in transitional housing, places where if you're not there for the night, your place is gone. So there are a lot of different ways in which incarceration, even for a short period of time, can really destroy someone's life. Exactly. Jail can do for your actual life what being in a marching band can do for your social life. <laughs> Even if you're just in for a little while, it can destroy you. Destroy you. But, that means it's no wonder that many defendants who can't afford bail favor option number two, simply pleading guilty even if you're not, as a former public defender explains. You sit in jail because you can't afford to pay your way to freedom and you're often confronted with a deal that goes like this. Plead guilty, get out, maintain your innocence and go to trial, stay in. And poor people are regularly choosing to admit guilt just to get out of there, which isn't good 
The only time that's appropriate is in a Catholic confessional. What, what do you mean, is there anything else? I don't know, I, I masturbated into a kiwi fruit. Is that what, what you want to hear? Just let me leave. I have stuff to do. And, and the problem is, if you do plead guilty to a crime you didn't commit, that has its own downsides. Because unfortunately, on a job application, next to the question, have you ever been convicted of a crime, check yes or no, most don't then leave four pages of blank space to explain the social and economic inequalities inherent in the legal system. <laughs> and, and that brings us to your final option, commercial bail bondsmen. You know, the people who make amazing ads like these. Grumpy's Bell Bonds has busted out all over Middle Tennessee. I ain't going out like that. I'm a call for Bell Bonds because they got my back. They got me out in no time. Now I'm back on track. Jesus Christ, Bell Bonds. The God release you to pay your plan by calling me. I'm Bishop Brian, Jesus Christ, Bell Bonds. 410-292-3029. Get locked up in a frame. Bell out. Bell out. Bell out. Bell out. Bell out. Jesus Christ, Bell Bonds. Yes! Jesus Christ, Belvoss! Amazing! It's, well, I will say, it, it is a little weird given that Jesus, pretty memorably, I think, was not bailed out. I mean, he, he did eventually escape custody, but it was a real workaround of the system. Now, here, here is how that system works, though. Bail bondsmen promise the court to pay your bail if you fail to show up for a trial. In exchange, you pay them 10 to 15% of the bail amount, which they then keep regardless of how your trial goes. So if your bail is $5,000 and you're found innocent, then you've basically just paid a $750 fee to a bondsman for doing absolutely nothing wrong. And paying $750 for absolutely nothing should be reserved for one thing and one thing only, six-month gym memberships. That's it. <laughs> you're not going to use it, Gerald. You're going to use the treadmill twice and that's it. This is learning to speak Korean all over again, Gerald. <laughs> And if you don't show up for your trial, bail bondsmen routinely hire bounty hunters to track you down, and they have a frightening amount of power. In all but four states, the companies are legally allowed to take almost any measure necessary to capture a client, including crossing state lines and breaking into homes. It's a dangerous business for everyone involved, with few rules and little oversight. Well, they're not kidding. In 18 states, anyone can become a bounty hunter, regardless of education, training, or prior criminal history. Becoming a bounty hunter is basically a lot like becoming a social media expert. <laughs> all, all it takes is one to get bad enough and not caring about whether strangers hate you or not. <laughs> but, but then, the news that any idiot can be a bounty hunter shouldn't really be that surprising to you if you've ever turned on A&E and stumbled across this. I am a lawman on a mission from God. When I say, Ooh. they know what I'm saying. How's it going, man? The only way this guy will get away from us is if he kills himself right now and jumps into a pool of sharks. Okay. Okay. I hate to be a stickler over chronology, dog, but how do you kill yourself and then jump into a pool of sharks? That, that's the kind of attention to detail, dog, that makes me worry about you operating as an unregulated vigilante. It says something about how comfortable we all are with how our bail system works, that a TV show where people with guns hunt humans for sport seems legitimate because we just think, well, they're just doing their actual job. And when you give bounty hunters this kind of power, 
Bad things happen. Veteran Gene Travis says he was sitting with his wife on his Bethpage front porch. Next thing he knows, his barn is being searched, and Travis has a stun gun pointed at his back. The intruders, Mark Brummett and his wife Angela, bounty hunters who police say had the wrong home. Clay was shot by one of the bondsmen. He was then transported to Ermac where he died. Was a bounty hunter justified in tasing a Midwest City homeowner last Saturday? Was another justified in shooting his dog? Police say the videotape they took says no. Yeah, the video says no. Basic human decency says no. Even a magic eight ball having seen that would say, holy shit, I can't believe you're even asking me. No! Look, our current bail system makes no sense and it does a lot of harm. And the frustrating thing is, we've known this for a long time. Just watch this TV news special from 1964. Yes, the jails are bursting at the seams. A problem of great concern to New York City Commissioner of Correction, Anna Cross. Remaining in jail because you can't get bail is really being punished before you're even found guilty. As far as I was concerned, that was not just. That was destroying our concept of justice. That's right. This problem has been obvious since it was considered okay to wear a wastebasket on your head. <laughs> but look, here's, here's the good news. There is a better way, and it's already in use in our federal courts and in Washington, D.C. Judges in Washington are allowed to set money bail only if the defendant can afford it. The results have been far fewer people spending time behind bars. We are the only city in America where tonight, at our jail, there is not a single man or woman who is sitting because they don't have the money to meet their money bond. And it's a testament, it's a testament to the state of our justice system that that qualifies as bragging, because that should be the norm. He's like a bus driver showing up at school saying, 23 kids picked up, 23 kids dropped off, I pitched a perfect game. Pre-trial services works like this. After you're arrested, specialists assess if you're, if you're dangerous or a flight risk. If a judge decides that you're not, you can go home and they may monitor you with things like drug tests or ankle monitors. They even call you to remind you of your court dates. It's a system built on interviews, pre-arranged appearances and trust. Much like Scientology marriages, only in this case, much more effective. And, and pre-trial service programs have succeeded around the country in places ranging from Oregon to Florida. And it is a truly frightening state of affairs when Florida is a model for progressive change. It shouldn't be a judicial example for anything. Did you know, by the way, that under Florida law, if you possess over five grams of meth, you can marry it? That's a fact. That's a legal fact. That's an actual photo that ran in a newspaper's wedding section in Florida. And yet, and yet, even counties in Florida recognised our money bail system is broken. And not only is pretrial services better, it's cheaper. A recent assessment of one system showed it costing only a tenth as much as keeping someone locked up. Which makes sense, because calling someone to check in costs virtually nothing. This message brought to you by your mother. <laughs> your mother, she brought you into this world, and would like to hear your f***ing voice once in a while. So, so, so if pre-trial services are fairer, better and cheaper, why aren't we all using it? Well, maybe, because thanks to reality shows, we think that this is what justice looks like. We're going to hunt this scum down. Get out!
Hi, Jay. This is Tom from Canada calling. I'm just calling in response to the standardized testing episode from a few days ago. Um, and also that uh, one caller that you had in your pre- last episode that was speaking about uh, about the funding issues and, and the healthcare system and uh, being Canadian with a with a pretty secure healthcare system was, was kind of I was kind of blown away by the fact that you know of course schools would be the access point for for those types of you know health related interventions because there is no you may not have any other venue for it so schools tend to become something more than just providing education. We all know that schools are a big source of recreation. So it's it's sometimes we are very, very confused on what the purpose of education should be. I'm a teacher by trade. Uh, While well, a former teacher, I've moved out of the classroom and now I'm working at a, at a, in a support level at, a, at the board level. But I look after um, uh, student assessment within my jurisdiction. Um, and uh, I mean, I can speak to a little bit about this, but it, it does blow my mind as well just how um, taken out of context uh, student assessment can be. Student assessment is like good student assessment is just good teaching and learning practice in a large part. And accountability systems are also extremely necessary. I think we can all recognize that. And, and I mean, you can't argue that. Uh, public assurance. Like we have to know that our education system is performing at a level that it, that you know, is is reflective of 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 our of our collective uh, wants and desires for our country. But what is always ironic on that is that, well, maybe not ironic, but just inappropriate use of of data is that teachers and schools and systems are used are, excuse me, are held accountable for things that are beyond their direct control. Um, so for instance, so say as a school I am provided with uh, such amount of funding to provide this education, I am accountable for those programs that I put in place, those things that I can directly uh, have people work on, I can you know, do myself, whatever it happens to be, those are the things that are within my control. Um, with students, we can teach them to the best of our ability, and we can work really, really hard. They can work really, really hard. But in the end, performance on a test is really beyond the teacher's control. Um, you know, the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Um, you can also salt the oats to make them want to drink. But in the, re- in the end, it's got to be up to that student to, 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 to perform um, and to hold a teacher accountable for that is, it's just, it's, it's beyond what is reasonable. Now, what is reasonable, a system needs to have data to know how it's doing. But to to narrow the focus of of a school's performance to tests in reading and writing and math or science or something really narrows the focus of what of of of, of what uh, success is in a school system. But also, it is also not measuring things that are within that realm of control of schools. So rather, I would I would be an advocate for, and I am an advocate for, um, extending what it is a school accountability system would look like, and a system, an education system accountability system would look like. A framework like this would include things like um, uh, the, the the relationships within a school, the the level of bullying, the uh, uh, the the conditions in which the, the the teaching and learning is actually taking place. Now, I'm not saying don't have academic measures. You need to have indicators that tell us how kids are doing academically. But if you just measure those things, then you really skew and narrow the, your your the, the possible interventions that you can put in place. 
Anyways, those are just my two cents, Jay. But just you know, for 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 your listeners, if they're interested, and maybe if there's other educators listening, the OECD, uh, which is the Organization for Economic Development, or Economic Cooperation and Development, rather. Sorry, this is the organization that you know puts out the international rankings where we see that you know where certain countries fall. This is when they say that the United States is performing poorly on international assessments. That's where the data comes from. And uh, in in the end, I mean, they offer, from looking at international research, research and their own data that they've collected through standardized testing, that they've like PISA and whatever else they have, they offer a lot of pointers in terms of how to set up accountability systems, and they all speak against using high uh, excuse me high, high stakes testing. So it's ironic the systems today actually moving further in bed with high stakes testing is going completely contrary to international research. Anyways, that's again just my two cents, Jay. Thanks for your time. Um, bye. Hey, Jay. This is Marcus again from Austin, Texas. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about personal responsibility. I know that people get upset about things, but then do very little to correct them. For example. People are upset with banks or bankers, or that the banks got bailed out. But then you'll see the same person pull out their Chase bank card. I don't know why anyone would still use one of those banks. Their only function is to manage money, and they've proven that they can't do that. It's the same thing if you hire an architect when that architecture firm's headquarters collapsed due to poor design. They've proved that they can't do it. It's very simple to. Move your money to a credit union, and they have all the same features that banks have. So, for people that complain about the banks, take your money out of the bank. Just like you know, if you don't like Walmart, don't shop at Walmart. Or um, I think a lot of people, or the media, was saying how McDonald's was doing so poorly, and it's because people decided to stop being there, not because they didn't like it, but because they weren't paying their workers and. They weren't using good food, and I think that people, the media, doesn't want to report that. But um, I don't think I heard one news station say that it's because they don't pay their workers. But that's why I stopped being there. And the same thing is true with the political action committees. I mean, I get emails from the Democratic Party saying, "We need to do something about money and politics. Please send us money." And that's not making any sense to me. If you want to do something about political action committees, then don't have a political action committee, or say that you're not going to have one.、Um, I just think people could do a little bit more to stop these bad things if we just stop using them. Thanks, Jay. Good job. Hi, Jay.、Uh, Dave from Milwaukee, Washington. I was listening to the episode on War on Drugs, number two nine two. Um, and in the accident segment, which is fantastic, you happen to use one of my favorite words in ways that words interact with the development of language and history and politics. Draconian laws,、um, and you know this may be just trivia for yourself, but Draco was、uh, an Athenian. He was kind of a dictator, really, if you get down to it. But he. Is responsible for the first written law code in Athens. Prior to that, it was an oral tradition that was the law, and so only you know the upper classes even knew what the laws were or could appeal to them because they only you know they were the only thing that the lower lower classes were really at the mercy 
of these secret laws that only the elite knew and were, of course, applied in a ridiculously inconsistent fashion. Oh, well, yeah, but he's one of our friends. He's a, he's a good guy. We don't need to apply the law to him. No, you know, no reason to, uh, to drag out these, you know, these, these archaic law codes. But if it was a, you know, a commoner, oh, the, the law, it's very important to do this. So Draco, written law codes are very important. But the laws that he wrote were almost comically harsh. If it wasn't the death penalty, it was being sold into slavery. Everything, stealing, cabbage, like in one explicit example, the penalty for stealing cabbage was death penalty. Apparently, at some point, Draco had, in conversation with someone, I forget the source here, but some later historian had reported this conversation that he uh, reported that, you know, well, these lesser crimes, clearly, you know, you deserve the death penalty, and it was just this unfortunate, you know, coincidence that there weren't you know, harsher penalties that he could apply to these more serious crimes, but um, he apparently felt very strongly about, about minor offenses. Very much a uh, much a broken windows kind of guy. Anyhow, I love the historical context that Draconian is set in because it was such an advance forward for the rule of law and for you know being able to appeal to a law code regardless of your status. Um, or, you know, in or out of the power structure. But at the same time, uh, it came forward with this, this just ridiculous, comically anymore. It's, uh, it's become, you know, it's become a word unto itself. Draconian, the original meeting lawgiver, is lost. It just means harsh because, because they were. Anyhow, have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, frankly, I thought today I didn't have that much to add. You know, we got some good voicemails in, but I didn't think I had much to contribute to the conversation. And then I remembered that a very well-timed email came in that I wanted to share with you. Uh, So Marcus was talking a bit, you know, among other things about Democrats asking for money so that they can get money out of politics. And I'm totally on board with not giving money to Democrats to get money out of politics. But I, I wouldn't say that the solution to getting money out of politics is to not have a political action committee. Case in point, Wolfpack and Mayday Pack. And so I received today, as I think many of you probably did, an email from Mayday Pack alerting me to a new law, well, a bill that has been introduced in the Senate, which they are endorsing. And, you know, it's it's not like the solution to everything, but it is a huge step in the right direction. So it's called the Fair Elections Now Act. It's introduced by Senator Dick Durbin. And just a little bit about it, the website says it provides everyday Americans with a $25 refundable My Voice tax credit to help spur small dollar contributions to candidates for congressional office. To participate, candidates would first need to prove their viability by raising a minimum number and minimum dollar amount of small dollar qualifying contributions from in-state donors. 
Participants would also receive a 6 to 1 match for small dollar donations up to a defined matching cap. After reaching that cap, the candidate would raise an unlimited amount of unmatched $150 contributions if needed to compete against high-spending opponents. And for the general election, qualified candidates would receive an additional grant, small dollar matching, and media vouchers for television advertising. So, you know, it's not a constitutional amendment, it's not a silver bullet, but given the slim pickings of what we have available, uh, it's definitely a huge step in the right direction. So you can go to mayday.us. They are uh, organizing a campaign to have people, you know, call into their senators or, or record messages that they can then give to senators to have them support this bill. I haven't had time to dive any deeper into it than what I just read to you, but it certainly sounds good for the time being. So again, for details, visit Mayday.us, the website of Mayday PAC, Political Action Committee. Uh, enjoy the irony. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained